ready? We're ready. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. This room is always interesting to me because you're way over here and you're over there. So this morning we're going to begin again with a brief announcement from the Culinary Medicine Program. Last week we didn't get to announce the uh, quiz winner or the question. So this week's theme is heart healthy diets and I hope you enjoyed today's egg salad. It was a good recipe and very healthy for you. Last week was on dairy and calcium and the week before was on menu planning and budget. So the week before there were the question was name the strategies for menu planning and it was Jonathan Jolin who put forward be sure to create a balanced menu with multiple food types. Jonathan are you here today? There you are. Okay, Jonathan come on over. And Jonathan he gets a menu planner that says what to eat and you can and I know in your current uh, place of life, you, you need some, Thanks you know, planning. planning. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Today's question was name two food sources of non-dairy calcium. And uh, today's winner, who put forward sardines and kale, is Don Collish. So Don, come on up. And and what Don wins. No, Karen, Karen Hike has really done it this time. Um, this comes from northern Vermont, and it was brought by her parents who live up there down this way. You can only get it up there, but it's Doe's Leap Maple Goat Milk Kefir, <laughs> which is a wonderful source of calcium and very unique, and it's chilled, and it'll stay so for an hour and then get it in the refrigerator, and there you go. Thank you, Don. <laughs> So just so our guest knows, we have a culinary medicine program here, which is fairly unique. And every Friday before Medical Grand Rounds, we have experts in nutrition and health prepare healthy food for a breakfast and also education. We accredit it, and it's a great series that's been going on through the whole year. Okay, so today to tell us about Steve Hollenberg, who is here as our guest speaker, is Jeff Munson. Jeff is the interim section chief in pulmonary and critical care medicine. He's the director of the medicine uh, critical care fellowship and he's an assistant professor of medicine in our department. Jeff, come tell us about Steve. Uh, thank you. So I invited um, Dr. Hollenberg to come to talk about a topic in critical care medicine because we often uh, don't hear a lot about critical care medicine despite all of us using it as a resource. As you'll see, he could cover almost the entire waterfront of critical care, so it was sort of fun to choose a topic for this talk. Uh, Dr. Hollenberg is a professor of medicine at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University. He was originally educated at Amherst College before doing his medical training at Emory. He then did his internship and residency at Cornell before doing his first I guess the first part of an extended fellowship in uh, critical care medicine at the NIH before then doing the latter portion of his fellowship training as a cardiovascular fellow at Johns Hopkins. Um, he has been a very successful and prolific basic science researcher, making major contributions to our understanding of the pathophysiology of shock and the um, microcirculation and sepsis. Uh, he's also currently involved in some translational research exploring nonlinear hemodynamic patterns that could ultimately be used both as prognostic factors and to guide resuscitation in critically ill patients. 
Um, in addition to being a very successful researcher, he is uh, recognized as an expert clinician in the field of cardiology and is the director of the coronary care unit at Cooper University Hospital. Um, needless to say, he has an extensive record of publication that is impressive in that it spans both the basic science end and the very clinical end in both the fields of critical care medicine and cardiology. So with that, I'd like you to join me in welcoming Dr. Hollenberg to Medical Grand Rounds. Thank you for the kind introduction. I'll try to live up to it. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So um, I'm going to tell you about the coronary care unit. Uh, I, I, there was a choice of topics, and this one seemed popular. I'm going to try to move around a little bit and look at my slides. Um, I should first say that I have no relationships to disclose uh, with, uh, with respect to this talk. That is slightly different from saying that I have no relationships whatsoever. Uh, so. Just a brief outline. Um, we'll talk about where we were, past, present, and future. This isn't, this isn't going to be very, very hard. Where we were, where we are, and hopefully give you a sense of at least where I think we're going and what some of the dilemmas are. So we start here, 1960. It's even, it's even a little bit, I was alive, it was a little bit before my time. So uh, these guys were running for president. I presume you know who won. This guy got drafted. Uh, this was a group uh, for the, uh, those younger in the world. Paul McCartney is not Sir Paul because of his solo work. Uh, they were driving this sort of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in the territory. There was a rookie named Carl Yastrzemski uh, in, a, in a town near here. And uh, all right, somebody born after 1960. This is Psycho. And that's Janet Lee. The surprise was actually they killed her off three minutes into the movie. She's never seen again. So there was other stuff happening in 1960. Um, over in Edinburgh, there was a 40-year-old physician. And he, got, he was admitted to the ward in Edinburgh with a myocardial infarction. Uh, as we'll see, at that time, they, they really didn't do very much. They were advanced. Shortly after admission, they were intending to go to the, he collapsed right next to the cardiac catheterization laboratory. At the time, cardiac catheterizations were done with cut downs. So you had your little scalpel, and you cut down for the brachial artery so that you could advance the catheter. So they had the scalpel right there. He was sitting next to the catheterization laboratory. And they knew uh, from the new research that if you, usually if your heart stopped, that was it. Um, but they knew if you could open the heart and do open cardiac massage, there was a chance. So he was right next to the catheterization laboratory. They opened it up. They did incurl cardiac massage. And he survived. It wasn't common at the time. So this guy wakes up. And it turns out he was trained at Johns Hopkins. And he said, oh, there's an article in the hospital journal. I know you opened me up, but there's an article. There are these guys named Cohen, Hoven, and Jude at Hopkins, and they're doing closed cardiac massage. Um, and it was in the article in the hospital journal. It wasn't exactly an internet there that you could look it up. And so if you were sitting in Edinburgh, you probably weren't reading the hospital journal of John Hopkins in Baltimore. But he told them about this technique, and they got interested in the notion that maybe you didn't have to open somebody up with a scalpel. The guy who did this was a guy named Desmond Julian, who arguably uh, is the father of the coronary care unit. He resuscitated four more patients, two open chest, four closed chest, and none of them survived. Um, and what he wrote was, uh, I'd say, prophetic. It was apparent that our inability to keep more than one out of our five patients alive was due to the delay in initiating treatment 
and lack of skills in the staff at hand. First guy is lucky, everybody's standing there next to the catheterization laboratory, next four apparently not, not so lucky. But the idea was attractive and this was really somebody who otherwise would have died who survived. So he described, they, they set up a specialized ward in the <coughs> Royal Infirmary at Edinburgh, uh, black and white color. Um, and he described it to the British Thoracic Society in 1961 and published the findings in Lancet later that year. Um, for reasons that I don't really know, he moved to Sydney and he established a uh, specialized ward there. That puts him in Australia. So um, he, uh, we'll, talk, we'll be back to Desmond Julian in a moment. Other people did this. Other specialized units were set up in Philadelphia. Toronto, New York, and Miami, but the term coronary curing unit was in fact uh, coined in Kansas City by Dr. Hughes Day at something called Bethany Hospital, um, the best equipped hospital in the Southwest in Kansas City, Kansas at the time. Um, so um, let's see what happened in Philadelphia. Roger Kitchell and Lawrence Meltzer, uh, one was a surgeon and one was a cardiologist, and I can't remember which is which actually. They set up a CCU at Presbyterian Hospital in Philadelphia in 1962, and it was a failure. The reason it was, a, or at least it started out as a failure. It was a failure because the coronary care unit was set up to look for arrhythmias. They were waiting for people to die. So they took the house officer and they said, your job is to sit next to the monitor and wait for a cardiac arrest. And so they sat the house officers down and they sit around all day and all night and all weekend and most times nothing happened. And they did not like it. So they, so they wrote, the results were dismal. The resident physicians were hopelessly bored with the inactivity and seemingly endless vigil and it became necessary to discontinue the effort abruptly to avoid what would now be called a demonstration. As the house officers said, no way we are doing this. So by default they said, well, who's around all the time, who works in shifts, who might be who might be able to do this. Specialized care wherein nurses rather than physicians assume the primary responsibility for surveillance as well as for emergency treatment. So it was assumed before they started this that the nurses would be completely incapable of, of, of uh, looking at rhythms and figuring this out um, because they were after all nurses and of course they were completely wrong. The nurses were better than the house staff and you know this now. The, you know, the house staff, you show, you show the nurses' rhythms and they're like this, you show the, how, the interns' rhythms, they go, well, yeah, I think. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's interesting that from the outset, CCUs were multidisciplinary, nurses, physicians, working together, uh, et cetera. Um, now, what if, what if Desmond Julian, so he goes to Melbourne and he writes uh, a report and he sends this to the British Medical Journal. After all, he's, he's from Edinburgh, and his, they published his first report, and they say, no, we're not interested. It was irresponsible to suggest that all patients with myocardial infarction should be admitted to wards in which they could receive intensive care. There was no, they hadn't shown benefit. I'm not quite sure what the British Medical Journal was doing, but in any case, ultimately, the Medical Journal of Australia saw fit to publish his initial responses, and we went from there. So just a little bit, these are, here's Jude and Cohenhoven uh, in Baltimore demonstrating CPR on a, uh, I, I believe this is a demonstration on a live patient. This is their defibrillator and it's also uh, along the multidisciplinary theme, I think it's, it's, it's illustrative to ask where this was coming from and it was coming from the surgeons, right? They were trying to do operations on congenital heart disease and to do that they planned them in in, in the animal laboratory, and it was bad when the animals 
had fibrillation in the middle. So they tried to save the animals so they could save their experiments. So they learned to defibrillate them. They learned to do closed chest massage. They learned to do open chest massage. And those, those uh, techniques were then translated from the animal laboratory of the surgeons through the cardiologist into. And this is the first defibrillation machine sitting on a cart. It's about this high, et cetera. Um, and we've certainly done a lot better uh, than that. We're at much, uh, uh, now our defibrillators sit comfortably on carts. So CCUs, where did we start? CCUs had nurses and physicians trained to recognize arrhythmias and to treat them. Um, and I think it's, it, it wasn't really apparent to me until I started looking into this how, what a radical change this was for anybody in the hospital. So sudden death was, at the time, in the, in the 60s, sudden death was death. There was no resuscitation. So when you resuscitated sudden death and you turned death into life, that was a dramatic and memorable event for everybody involved. Um, it was heroic medicine. Um, and so it, it actually changed the zeitgeist. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, physicians, at least cardiologists, were going to save lives. They were going to take somebody who otherwise would have died, and they were going to save them. And again, you save somebody from a myocardial infarction arrhythmia. In general, things go well. They have uh, survival. They come and talk to you. They tell you about, their, about the publications at Hopkins. It really changed the whole. Everybody now had to have a coronary care unit. Um, however, once the electricity, uh, once the electrical problems got taken care of, now your problem was pump failure. Um, and so coronary care units evolved from places where you looked for arrhythmias to now places where you detected pump failure, heart failure, and you began to treat that, you began to diagnose it, um, and you began to treat that. And the primary me means of diagnosis, at least at the time, was the uh, right heart catheter, flotation catheter. You put in a PA catheter, you'd, put, you'd divide people into hemodynamic subsets, and you would treat them according to their hemodynamic subsets. We'll get there um, in a little bit. Actually, we'll get there now. Here's the, uh, um, here's the paper. This is the Forrester paper out in 1976 in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at hemodynamics after MI. Here's cardiac index, and here's pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. Um, and here's, this is a normal index, and this is a low index. This is a high wedge pressure. This is a low wedge pressure. Um, and the survivors are here in yellow, and the non-survivors are here in blue. And so if your output was OK and your pressures were low, you did fine. Um, if your output was okay and your pressures were high, you mostly did fine. If your output was low and your pressures were low, maybe you got a little bit of fluid, but if you didn't recognize it, you might get in a little trouble. And you'll recognize these are the kill-up classes, kill-up one, kill-up two, kill-up three. But down out here, if your output is low and your pressures are high, you're in cardiogenic shock and the mortality is substantial. So. We began to treat myocardial infarction. So let's talk a little bit about the evolution of care of myocardial infarction. Before the CCU, back in the days, um, they, the days when 15 patients came in with MI every night, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, there wasn't a lot to do for them. You put them at bed rest. Um, so you put them to bed for several weeks. You gave them oxygen. You gave them morphine for their pain. As a matter of fact, I'm told that uh, the professor came to the bedside and you had a discussion about whether today was the day the patient could dangle his or her legs over the bed. And, and maybe, maybe we should wait another day or maybe we should do it today. And uh, tomorrow, if they dangled for this long, maybe we should do it longer. There were debates on rounds. Um, and the mortality of myocardial infarction, even after defibrillation, was 30%. Um, much of that mortality, by the way, was pulmonary embolism. And people who were using heparin at the time as prophylaxis for pulmonary embolism were well ahead of their time, and their patients did better. 
So now we come to the CCU era, and as I've shown, we did defibrillation, we did hemodynamic monitoring, and treated heart failure, and toward the late 60s, early 70s, beta blockers began to come into, into vogue, and the mortality went down to 15%. Our mortality isn't 15% for MI in the ICU now. We're in the reperfusion era, and we've got aspirin and dual antiplatelet therapy and lytics and percutaneous coronary intervention and, 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 and. and um, right now, the mortality from in-hospital mortality from MMI is somewhere around 4 to 5%. One of the reasons why a cardiology trial trying to show that new therapy is better than the current therapy has to be 15 or 20,000 patients big because it's hard to show a difference between 4% and 3.2%. That would be a 20% reduction in mortality. So let's move a little bit along to the CCU of today. In addition to reperfusion, we have various means of, of cardiac support other than medications. We've got the intraaortic balloon pump here. They're getting smaller. They don't, they don't necessarily require heparin, and you'll remember for the medical students here, you'll remember that these inflating diastole, increasing coronary perfusion pressure, and deflating systole, decreasing afterload, and helping cardiac pumping. Um, and in addition to the balloon pump, even the balloon pump is, is a little passe now. Um, this is not your grandfather's CCU. So, you know, this is, a, this is an Apple II, by the way, and, and it, the whole technology is different. You guys don't, I don't think you use Apple IIs here. You don't even use big computers. Um, you know, you're sitting around on the iPad. But, so I think it's an information as well as the technology, as well as the actual physical technology. We also have a set of information technology. You can look at the echo at the bedside and pull it up. You can look at the cardiac catheterization, you don't have to, you don't have to put that, I'm not too old to remember uh, putting the film on the sprockets, the catheterization film on the sprocket, that was the fellow's job. The fellow's job when everybody was standing around at Grand Rounds was to cue up the film and make sure it was going in the right direction so, so he didn't have to thread it again. And when, they, when the visiting professor came, they picked the best fellow, the one who was best at the AV to, to show the film. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about the treatment of cardiogenic shock, one of my, uh, one of my academic interests. Um, so this is the hemodynamic model of cardiogenic shock. We published that in the review article in the annals a good solid <coughs> six years ago. Um, and um, this is to show what you know about cardiogenic shock, wherein myocardial dysfunction begets ischemia. Ischemia begets myocardial dysfunction, which begets ischemia, which begets myocardial dysfunction. So you have systolic dysfunction that decreases cardiac output and stroke volume. That causes hypotension, decreasing coronary perfusion pressure, and it decreases systemic perfusion, causing, causing compensatory vasoconstriction and fluid retention, and that causes myocardial dysfunction. On the diastolic side, your LV and diastolic pressures go up, your pulmonary, you get pulmonary congestion, and what little blood that is going to the heart doesn't have very much oxygen, and you get in trouble that way. So, Dysfunction begets ischemia, ischemia begets dysfunction. If you don't get out of this cycle, you get into big trouble. So this is what Judy Hochman would call the classic model of cardiogenic shock, by which she means the outmoded and no longer correct model. Um, so, and, and some of the data actually that challenge it come from the shock trial. So this is, this is the ejection fraction in a number of trials. Here's the shock trial, and here's the ejection fraction. The Ephesus trial is a plerinone, the Valiant trial is Valsartan, the Capricorn trial is Carvedilol. And these are recent MIs without CHF, and there's a fairly broad range. None of these, none of these ejection fractions are normal. But if what you see is that the ejection fractions in the shock trial in general overlap this trial. They go up to 35 or 40% even in patients in cardiogenic shock, raising the notion that perhaps 
Cartesianic shock doesn't result simply from depression of left ventricular function, the hemodynamic model. The heart doesn't pump and you get in trouble. But, but maybe there is not only depressed myocardial contractility, but inadequate systemic vasoconstriction from a systemic inflammatory response. So all shock kind of looks the same at some point. You start getting inflammation, you start getting vasodilation, you get a common pattern of shock. Um, and that includes cardiogenic shock, perhaps the classic example of a shock that we thought we understood. How much, you, how much simpler does it get? Your heart doesn't pump, your blood pressure goes down, we have to make your heart pump, you get better. Well, often, but not necessarily always. So if you actually look at IL-6 in different forms of shock, so IL-6 is an inflammatory marker. So you know that in septic shock, IL-6 levels are elevated and IL-6 levels are prognostic. And here's a paper out of critical care medicine in 2002 looking at septic shock with and without multiple organ failure, looking at elevated levels of IL-6. Controls are over here. And these levels, and in cardiogenic shock, the levels go up. And in fact, the cardiogenic shock with multiple organ failure or one organ failure are higher than cardiogenic shock without, thus suggesting that there is an inflammatory component even in cardiogenic shock. Um, and some suggestion that maybe this has to do with the nitric oxide system. Um, this is to remind you what you know. Inducible nitric oxide synthase uh, converts arginine to citrulline, releasing nitric oxide, causing vasodilation. And there are any number of inflammatory mediators, including ischemia and TNF and IL-1 and LPS, that induce, induce nitric oxide synthase as well as trauma. And if I were in trauma conference, I'd be telling you about how traumatic shock with hemorrhagic shock is also associated with an inflammatory component that helps with vasodilation and failure to compensate. Sort of the same uh, shock is kind of the same disease. Um, so Judy Hockman in circulation in 2003 took this model and said, well, you know, this is the classic model, but we're going to add some stuff. We're going to say, in addition to this, we've got systemic inflammation that releases inflammatory cytokines of various sorts, and that leads to uh, inducible nitric oxide, uh, inducible nitric oxide uh, induction with release of nitric oxide. Nitric oxide combines with superoxide to produce peroxynitrite. That causes vasodilation, and that vasodilation decreases systemic vascular resistance, decreases systemic perfusion, and can decrease coronary perfusion pressure and get you in trouble. <coughs> now, the, this, this is, unfortunately, this, this model is probably true. It did not lead to a, a successful therapeutic intervention. There was a trial of nitric oxide synthase inhibitors and methylarginine, uh, which is called telarginine in that trial. It did raise blood pressure. Unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't improve mortality in cardiogenic shock. But it does suggest that at least there is an inflammatory component. Um, in addition, there is a microvascular component, another one. I had to get this in. Um, so this is a. Um, this is a way to image the microvasculature. This particular technique is called orthogonal polarization spectral imaging. You won't see this very much because of the next technique I'll show you, but the principles are the same. And the principles work something like this. You have a polarizing filter and you shine some light on, a surf on, a, on the surface, usually the sublingual surface because you don't want to go through the skin. So most of the light bounces off and bounces straight off. But if it bounces around a little bit, and it depolarizes, it gets through the polarization filter, and you can image it with your camera. So if you bounce green light off there, the green light will bounce off the red stuff. What's the red stuff? The red stuff are the red cells. And what you can do is you can image red cells in the capillaries. You actually don't image the blood vessels themselves, but you do image the cells within the blood vessels. Um, this has been advanced. This is called side stream dark field imaging. The, the principles are just the same. The light path is different unless you can get a patent on this 
that you didn't get a patent on that. These are better pictures and this is what is used. And you can sort of see, you can actually see white cells in the capillaries as gaps, um, but you can also see flow in these capillaries. I won't show you movies, but I will show you that there is some data that there is perturbation in microvascular flow. So we think of cardiogenic shock as a macrovascular disease, uh, cardiac output, coronary blood flow, et cetera. But if you go and you look at proportion of perfused vessels, what you see is that there is a perfusion defect using these techniques, uh, worked by Daniel DeBacker out of, uh, out of Brussels, looking at decreased uh, perfused vessels in cardiogenic shock as well as in cardiac failure, suggesting that like other forms of shock, septic shock being a classic microvascular disease, even in cardiogenic shock, uh, there is a microvascular component. So um, after a little detour into some science and some inflammation, what about mechanicals? What, about, what are we doing in the CCU today? Well, we're doing more than just putting in balloon pumps. I won't show you the data about balloon pumps and cardiogenic shock. Uh, it's a story for another day. This is a tandem heart. Um, it's, a, it's a relatively clever device. Um, it, it's a continuous flow device, and it removes oxygenated blood from the left atrium uh, via transeptal catheter placed through the femoral vein, and it returns blood through the femoral artery. So if you will, it's using the body to oxygenate the blood. You don't need an oxygenator on this device. It takes oxygenated blood and it returns it back to the femoral artery, and it's been shown to have beneficial hemodynamic effects decreases left atrial and pulmonary capillary wedge pressures, decreases myocardial oxygen demand, increases mean arterial pressure, and increases cardiac output. The CCU of today has other devices. This is an impella device. This is a rotating device, and it goes, uh, the cardiologists are, are relatively comfortable with putting this in because it's just a left heart cath that goes across the aortic valve, and this, this pumps blood from the, takes the blood from the left ventricle, pumps it out into the aorta. Various sizes have various capabilities of producing cardiac output. Uh, the blood returns to the descending aorta. You get an augmentation of cardiac index. Uh, challenge here is that with the rotating blood, you can shear the red cells, you get hemolysis after a while, et cetera. Um, so you have tandem parts. You have impellas. Uh, I had to replace this slide. My old slide of Centromag yesterday was this big metal thing. The Centromag device, which rotates and, and, and provides support, is now this small, elegant-looking plastic thing uh, that, that also rotates and can be used to produce cardiac out, to uh, augment cardiac output. Here is a HeartMate 2 device. This is an implantable uh, left ventricular assist device. The blood comes out of the apex of the heart here, goes through this. Uh, this rotating device and is returned back through the ascending aorta to go out in the heart. It has a little generator. Um, it, it, the wires go out into batteries and people can walk around with these assist devices, but they can also be used as bridge to, trans, bridge to transplant. Uh, they actually are not labeled as bridge to decision, but in some contexts you can use a support device as a bridge to decision. If you have right and left heart failure, you can use these things together. This is the the, the central mag I was going to show you, the old device. So here's a, here's a person who has a left ventricular assist device over here on the left side, and now it has a central mag to support the right side. You get biventricular support with two percutaneous assist devices. Uh, if that doesn't work, we go to total artificial heart. This is the Jarvik total artificial heart. This is the Syncardia two-chamber total artificial heart. Um, so the CCU of today has become a technological marvel in which we have all these ways to support the heart and a certain amount of expertise is required to try to decide which device is best for which patient in which setting. Um, and we're using a lot more of this. This is a uh, study out in uh, Journal of American College of Cardiology last year looking at 
the numbers of mechanical circulatory support procedures over the years from 2004 to 2011. So balloon pumps are up here. So they're, they're probably the most common, the balloon pump and the cath lab, and they, they really haven't changed very much. But all these other devices, short-term, percutaneous, non-percutaneous support, ECMO, all that is going up starting around, say, six or seven or eight years ago and now heading up toward 30, 40,000 patients. It's, it's really an impressive, uh, an impressive uh, collection of devices and impressive successes as they, the first generation devices, the second generation devices are better than the first and the third are better than the second and the efficacy goes up and the complication rate goes down. The CCU has now become a place in which you have to manage these sort of sophisticated devices. So let's talk a little bit about the demographics of the CCU of today. Uh, this is a paper published by Jason Katz. He was out at Duke. He's now in North Carolina. Uh, looking at who gets admitted to the CCU today. ST elevation MI has actually gone down along with the national trends to decrease ST elevation MI. Exactly why that happened is not entirely clear. Non-ST elevation MI has gone up partially because, maybe because we're detecting it better. But more congestive heart failure. Cardiogenic shock incidents roughly stable somewhere around the 6, 7, 8% range along the way. But what's really dramatic is the sort of diagnosis uh, that is happening in our coronary care units. No longer just the heart. Here's, the, here's, the, here's sepsis as we start getting inflammation, as we start putting in percutaneous devices, as we start treating people with transplantation and immunosuppression. Septic shock goes up. Renal disease, you know this. Used to be that uh, now everybody with renal with the CCU has renal insufficiency of some sort. Acute respiratory failure, even pneumonia, has been uh, has been going up in the years. And our procedures are changing as well. So PA catheterization, a story for another day. But if we're there here in the 90s, we're at 15 percent now. We're down in three, four, two, three, four, five percent. We'll we'll leave. We'll leave whether that's the right number for another day. Intraaortic balloon pumps, big spike up in, the, up in the 90s when there was nothing there. Now there are alternatives to intraaortic balloon pumps. We use them, but not quite so often. Central venous catheterization, are we measuring saturations, this and that? Much higher. Prolonged ventilation. Um, now it's not uncommon to see somebody on a ventilator for a long time in a CCU. And that requires another set of skills to try to manage those patients. What's interesting is that despite the fact that CCUs are looking more like ICUs and that patients are getting more involved, <laughs> despite the fact that the comorbidities are going up, here's the Charlson comorbidity index. Um, Mary Charlson was at Cornell, by the way. Um, that, that despite the fact that comorbidities are going up, mortality has gone down. I, I, I'd argue at this point actually out here may be an outlier. But in any case, in general, despite increasing comorbidities, mortality has gone down. We're doing a better job with these more complicated patients. So what about other trends? The case mix is changing. So there's a lower proportion of acute coronary syndromes and arrhythmias. All that myocardial infarction, let's watch for arrhythmias, they're still around, but they don't go. They don't necessarily go to the CCU. Acute coronary syndromes often goes from the ED to the cath lab. And then if they look okay in the cath lab, they don't necessarily go to the CCU. They look good. You fix the artery, they look, they're, they're, they're awfully sick. Their right coronary artery was occluded. Now you open the right coronary artery, everything's better. Why do we need to put this patient in the CCU? No, no, no they'll do okay on the floor. Uh, and two days later, we'll send them home. More congestive heart failure and more of it advanced. Not just a little bit of I stopped taking my medicines, but much more uh, chronic congestive heart failure. Long ICU stays, new hardware, as I mentioned. Um, and, and certainly a greater burden of medical comorbidities, concomitant infection, and or sepsis. 
renal replacement therapy, prolonged mechanical <coughs> ventilation. So really the case mix of the CCU is changing, and we'll talk about the implications that has for staffing of the CCU and training in the CCU uh, and all that. Um, we're also measuring different things. The CCU is no longer exempt. They're, they're, with everything else, there's process and quality improvement, uh, interdisciplinary care, multiple stakeholders. Um, how are we using our beds? What are our outcomes? What are our complication rates, et cetera? There are all sorts of people who are interested in how we're doing that. Um, and outcomes reporting and assessment has come to the CCU as well. Risk-adjusted mortality, ICU readmission, preventable complications of all sorts. Uh, aspiration's not supposed to happen in your CCU either. Central line associated blood infections aren't supposed to happen. And by the way, you're supposed to figure out, figure this all out. So here's a slide from the CCU today. Um, th this is uh, David Morrow put together a group to talk about coronary care. You know, he's at the Brigham, and they put together a multidisciplinary group and put out this paper <coughs> in circulation in 2012, looking at the changes in population, advances in medical care, advances in technology, and training and organization. And they talk about how the CCU has sort of evolved from the rapid resuscitation phase to the preventive intervention phase, and now we're in the comprehensive critical care phase. So they talked about a number of different aspects of this. So with rapid resuscitation, this was ST elevation MI. We've seen how that came. Now we talk about acute coronary syndromes and heart failure, and we're moving toward complex cardiovascular disease with comorbidities. Um, and so as, in terms of care, we go from post-MI care to post-MI care and suspected acute ischemia and all that, now to therapy for advanced heart failure, interventions for pulmonary hypertension, and protocols for patient safety. Um, in terms of therapy, we started with defibrillation. We went to defibrillation, antiarrhythmic therapy, and extended pharmacotherapy. And now we're in mechanical support, therapeutic hypothermia, although I, they called it hypothermia in 2012. Now we make them call it therapeutic temperature management, right? Advanced modes of ventilation, renal replacement therapy. Um, and, and invasive, various sorts of invasive and non-invasive monitoring. One of the reasons the PA catheter is, no, is not used quite as much is that there are other less invasive techniques that are useful to, met, to monitor and measure many of the same parameters that were there. And we started with nurses and first responders, then we went to <coughs> specialized nursing, and now we're in advanced nursing, sorry, I, I, advanced nursing practice, I, uh, sorry, I, that was a mistake. We have advanced nursing practice, we have a multidisciplinary group, and I'm just going to not to spend too much time on this slide. The problem with animating the slide, look fast. <laughs> Multidisciplinary <laughs> care, performance improvement, information technology, a multi, uh, multidisciplinary care team, and advanced nursing practitioners working side by side with all the other practitioners in the unit. So the CCU today is multi-specialty, it's multidisciplinary, and it's collaborative. Another way of saying this is that. CCU care is a team sport. It really always has been a team sport. We're just getting better at explicitly recognizing the degree to which it's a team sport. And CCU leaders are now team leaders. They build a team. They keep the team together, as opposed to being the one person who knows the answer and tells everybody else what to do. Um, how about the CCU of tomorrow? Well, or maybe even the CCU of today, depending on the degree to which you're advanced. Uh, we're, we're not where I am. We're trying. Uh, there'll be infection protocols for central line insertion to prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia, and not only by calling it something else like acute tracheobronchitis, but actually preventing. Um, there'll be preventive isolation to try to, to try to keep, uh, you know, again, when your coronary care unit gets, uh, gets a, gets a, a uh, extended spectrum uh, ASBL producer 
you, you get in trouble in the unit, now you gotta clean out the unit. Hand washing. Um, quality measures, and we'll be measuring central line associated blood infection and ulcer and DVT and bundle compliance, and also ICU length of stay and the hospital mortality for ICU patients and CCU patients. So the question is, how are we gonna do this? There are staffing issues. You have, and, and you'll have multidisciplinary staffing. So we staff our CCUs like we staff our ICUs now. Nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, nutritionists, I'm glad you have nutrition, they're important in the ICU too. Social work and discharge planning, very important in my world. You get them out of heart failure, but you have to keep them out of heart failure. People are counting readmission rates, and it, it doesn't always depend on what you did or didn't do in the hospital. Advanced care practitioners, sort of a story for another day, but uh, who's gonna be there at night? To the extent, to what extent are we incorporating advanced care practitioners into our critical care workforce? And at the bottom, not the least important, but certainly uh, not the mo not necessarily the only uh, the physicians. So let's talk a little bit about structural questions. How are you going to structure the CCU tomorrow? Who should be in charge of the patient? We'll we'll leave out the the nurses and everything else. So is it the cardiologist? Traditionally was. But the traditional model was uh, 12 different cardiologists each took a month on service in the CCU, right? So for 11 months you sat in your laboratory, and one month, one month a year you were the CCU director. You showed up, you taught, you taught, you led rounds, you taught, and then you went back to your laboratory for 11 months. That's really not the model anymore. Um, how about a critical care medicine specialist? Um, they're certainly attuned to all these, much more attuned to all these issues than the average general cardiologist spending 11 months either in the laboratory or in his office and spending a month showing up on rounds. Um, a critical care trained cardiologist would be nice, um, but the question is can we do that? So I, I'm trained in cardiology and critical care. There are some of us out there. There's an increasing number of us out there, but are there really enough for this to be the model? And is there a career path for this? Um, there, how about co-management? Uh, are, are are, Probably, but who's co-managing with who? Cardiologists with critical care, cardiologists with this, and what about the surgeons? It's uh, it, it's important because your your coronary care unit, that the cardiologists, the cardiac surgeons are now much closer to the cardiologists than they are to the general surgeons. The cardiologists are much closer to the cardiac surgeons than they are, say, to the rheumatologists, even though they sit in the Department of Medicine. Um, but the surgeons really. Uh, you're going to talk to the surgeons, but you'll also have a, a collection of post-operative patients and the mechanical support. It's the surgeons putting in, and they get their opinion as to who's going to take care of the patients that they operate on after they come to the unit. And you need to you need to ask them what they think about this. And different places, different places, and different surgical groups have different opinions, even in the same even in the same place. Open model versus closed model. Uh, we have an open unit, or is everybody taken care of on the closed unit? Um, and how much persist? Physician presence is needed and ideal. You know, ICUs have been talking about whether you need 24-hour physician presence. Do you need 24-hour physician presence in the CCU? And which cardiologist, if you're going to do this with a cardiologist, which one is volunteering to spend every night in the hospital to take care of critically ill patients in a CCU? Are we really going to do that in our cardiology? Maybe. Um, and, and importantly, we do have some trainees. What role should trainees play? As these things get more complicated, as this becomes a much more complicated enterprise, um, the old idea of rolling in on the first of the month and saying, okay, I'm taking care of the patients now. Uh, let me know what I need to know. It's a little hard. Um, and, and how do we teach our trainees to learn how to do this um, and, yet, and yet provide the sort of quality care that our patients really care? Lots of questions, not so many answers. Um, I, will, I will present a little bit of data from a survey. This is uh, O'Malley uh, published this. This is the same group that David Morrow put together. So they did a survey. 
and they talked about what we're doing, and then there's a little bit about what we think we should be doing. So here's, this is organization staffing practices in, in U.S. intensive care units. So I think they're interesting. There's something for everybody. Uh, if you want, you should pull this reference and see, uh, and, and read it and look at this. I, surveys are uh, semi-scientific, but nonetheless, I think they're, they're, they're interesting. So here is what we're currently doing. So this is surgical ICUs and this and that. But de dedicated CCUs, probably 50-50. Half open, half closed, and I, we have we have a private cardiology group in our practice, and so it's a little difficult to close the unit with a university cardiology group when you have a group of private practitioners that are supplying your medical center with patients who need bypasses and procedures and catheterizations and are helping your financial models. Not necessarily such an easy answer, uh, even for somebody in the in the ivory tower of academics to say. Um, and let's look at intensivists. So. They're not available in 10%. I hope that's not the, too many. Uh, cardiac intensivists for each patient, not very many of us around. But so intensivists available, but not always consulted. Intensivists consulted on intubated patients. Intensivists is primary, co-managed, 3%. This is a, this is a gr broad survey of hospitals around the country. But it's interesting. And then they said, well, OK, what do we think we should be doing? So this is color-coded, yes, somewhat, not so sure, disagree, and really strongly disagree. So, closed units are better? Well, so about 80% agree that units are closed, but only 50% of them, or a little more than 50% of them, are actually closed. Involvement with critical care specialists is necessary. Now remember, we're asking the cardiologist this. So there's a little bit of division of opinion. Yes, maybe not. Um, however, even though you don't need an intensivist, most cardiologists have the skills required for management. Well, about half of them think they do, and about a little, a little more than a third of them think they don't. And how about there's an unmet need for cardiologists who have specialized training? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 80% think that our cardiologists need to know more about critical care, even though maybe most cardiologists have the skills. This isn't entirely consistent in here. So um, should we have referral centers with full-time staffing by cardiologists with expertise? Pretty good. Yeah, probably should. Um, but it is feasible for my hospital to develop a closed unit? Uh, not right now. 60% uh, say no. And then your current structure is best fit for your patient population. People are reasonably happy with their current structure. I think that's illustrative, actually. Uh, structures are, are, really, are really designed to fit the area institutions. But my hospital should develop a closed ICU with full-time staffing cardiologists with critical care expertise. There's at least some consensus that maybe we should move this way. So how do we train tomorrow's uh, CCU staff? This is, this is not entirely clear. How about dual certified cardiac intensivists? Trained in cardiology, trained in critical care, double, uh, path, both pathways. Well, we could do that with cardiology plus critical care medicine, three years of cardiology fellowship, one year of a critical care medicine fellowship, uh, four years. I did that. Um, one, year, one clinical year of critical care, one clinical year of cardiology. It was actually three and a half years in the lab, but well, we'll leave that for another day. But that was a part of a four-year combined fellowship. Um, so uh, they do something similar in Europe. They have a, a simply it's a cardiology critical care pathway, and it's four years, and they put it all in together. Um, how about a dedicated training program in critical care cardiology? People have talked about this, um, and so you would go into a a, a specialized four-year program. The desire, the design being to uh, be integrated with a single accreditation between critical care and cardiology. Um, I think that would be great. I'm just not sure how, how often they're going to do that, who's going to credit. And, and the other question for, for what you tell your trainees, is there a career pathway? 
Are there people? Are, are there institutions hiring uh, wanted? Cardiology, integrated critical care cardiology, critical care doctor to run our CCU. Is that a job? Is, is that a job that's going to be out there so you could say, we need people to do this because there will be academic and financial opportunities to do that. Uh, the alternative is what a lot of people are doing. Intensivists with lots of experience. I'm trained in critical care. I've been working in a coronary care unit for the last fill in five, 10 years. I know what I'm doing now. I, I've gotten to know the surgeons. I've gotten to know the cardiologists. I know what they want. I know when I need their help and I know when I don't need their help and they know it too. Surgeons are allowing me to take care of their patients. They know I call them when I need to and they know I don't call them when they don't need to. <laughs> Alternatively, cardiologists with a lot of experience. I'm a cardiologist. I know all the cardiology. Um, I, I didn't really train in critical care, but after years of, of the ventilator, air goes in and out. I, I know when I can handle a ventilator, <laughs> and I know when I can't handle a ventilator. I know when I need to call the pulmonary folks and say, and say, I need some help here. What is this airway pressure release ventilation that I'm talking about? What is this ARSNET protocol, and should I be using it, um, et cetera? And I know when I need the ID consultants in here, and I can, I can manage the consultants and, and figure this out. So those are the choices here. So as a wrap up, um, and, and, I, and lots of questions, no answers. Um, today's CCU is looking more like a medical intensive care unit. I think that's pretty clear. And so the skill set is evolving over time. Medical complications, well, well just sort of with quotations on medical drive, morbidity, and mortality. It's not necessarily how the heart pumps. It's all the other sorts of complications that it's not even the mechanical devices. It's the infections. It's the inflammation. Um, it should be important. These complications are incompletely captured. I don't, I don't know that our CCUs are doing as good a job as our ICUs, and I'm not so sure our ICUs are always doing such a good job of capturing comorbidities and complications and all that. We certainly haven't built great systems in many CCUs to try to capture this and try to figure this out. If you don't measure it, you don't know, uh, you don't know about that. These patients are not well represented in trials. The sort of sick intensive care medicine is really not rep well represented in most of the and so the data that you have to manage them is somewhat incomplete. You're extrapolating from other sorts of patients and doing your best to do that. The skill set required to take care of these patients is evolving. And I think it's important, it is unlikely that one size will fit all. And that's one of the challenges here. Different institutions have, have different problems and different ways. And it's not only that different surgeons have different opinions about things that they will. It's, it's, I'm not really blaming the surgeons there. It's just an, a, an illustration of how uh, of, of how the structures, the volume, the case mix, the local expertise, and yes, the physical plant. Do you have one big unit? Do you have other units? Are you trying to distribute this across a hospital system that is geographically separated? Are there two hospitals that are across the street, each of which have a, their own operation, neither of which want to, want to give it up? Uh, right? Somebody said we'd combine them together and, and, and we'd make one department go away, but you can't decide which department is going away. Department, you know, the one in A hospital or the one in B hospital, both of which have a distinguished and long history of good patient care, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the financial structure, I hate talking about financial, but the way in which it's going to be reimbursed are, are all relevant. And so I, I think that, that I, I really do think that uh, at each institution you have to think through these problems, you have to think through the training, you have to think through the structures, figure out who the stakeholders are, figure out what the goals are, and then try to come to some idea of how you're going to do it. And I really do think that different places are going to do this in different ways. So, so I, I hope I've given you a sense of where the coronary care unit is doing. Um, so 
this is not uh, so we used to talk about the heart we used to start with the heart and finish with the heart and there I I know I, I, I think about the heart a lot but it's really a cognitive this is really figuring out how to take care of the patients this is as much cognitive um, as, as it is about the mechanics of, uh, of pumping and hemodynamics and so I know I've shown you a lot of technology. I showed you that the CCU of today and the, CC, the CCU of today has all this high technology that we didn't really necessarily have and when, when CCUs started. But I would argue that the high technology CCU methodology of future is not a device, but rather a broadly inclusive, multi-professional and multidisciplinary approach to patient care. So, I'll stop talking and take questions, comments, and rebuttals if you like. Uh, I'll just show you this last slide. They're sitting here and they're saying we'll have to get rid of all our furniture. They just discovered perspective. So uh, I hope I've changed your perspective at least a little bit. And when you go home, maybe you should take another look at your furniture. Thank you very much.